John chapter 7 is where we're at. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' uh, feast of tabernacles was at hand. Here in these first two verses, we have the timestamp and we have the occasion for these events. The timestamp we see there in verse 1, after these things. This, of course, refers to the events that took place uh, in chapter 6 that we just finished a couple of weeks ago. And we also see the occasion in verse 2. And the occasion is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, uh, commemorated God's provision for the Jews when they were wandering in the wilderness. It's kind of like our 4th of July. Um, This was the celebration of their independence from Egypt. It was a joyful week-long celebration at the end of September, beginning of October. Uh, And what they would do is they would uh, erect these these booths, these tents. It was camping, if you will. And that was commemorating their time of wandering in the wilderness and specifically focusing on the faithfulness of God uh, during that time. The Hebrews called this the Festival of Booths um, because for the full week that the festival lasted, the people lived in these makeshift booths of branches and of leaves and so on. And so we have here the timestamp and we have the occasion and we put them both together and what that instructs us, what it teaches us is that these events follow the events of chapter 6 by about six full months. Uh, during that six months, uh, we don't, we don't uh, cover that six months in John's gospel, but we, we learn in uh, the, the harmony of the gospels, in the, the synoptic gospels, that um, Jesus focused his ministry entirely in Galilee during that six months, the six months that precede verse 1 here. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what the harmony of the Gospels tell us is that his focus during this six months in Galilee was primarily on his disciples. Why? Well, the primary reason that Jesus stayed and, uh, in the region of Galilee, we see in verse 1, is because the Jews sought to kill him in Judea, right? Um, this Understand, this isn't an intimidation issue. It's a timing issue. Uh, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. His His entire purpose for coming was to die on that Roman cross in Jerusalem. And so he's not afraid of the Jews, and he's not afraid of what they're going to do to him. He has a a divine mandate from God, and he is on a very strict timetable. We'll come back to that. Um, So that's the primary reason that he stayed. But the, the related reason that Jesus stayed in the region of Galilee and spent this six months intensely focused on the discipleship of his disciples is to prepare them for what's coming and what will follow after his cross. And so this is very important. You see, even though we're only a third of the way through the Gospel of John here uh, in John chapter 7, Jesus at this point is in his last six months of ministry on the earth. And and so uh, John is going to devote the the rest of the, the, the next 14 chapters, 15 counting uh, chapter 7, he's going to focus that on uh, this six-month period leading up to the cross and and the events that happened immediately after the crucifixion. And so 
not only is this time that's coming for, for him and for his disciples, not only will this time test and try his disciples, but uh, it's ultimately going to culminate in his passing of the baton to his disciples. And at this point, just hit the pause button, there's a point of application for us just in noting that fact that Jesus so intently focused this six months leading up to, to chapter 7 on discipling his, his disciples. Um, the point of application for us is just as the disciples needed to prepare for the trial that they are about to face, here's the fact, so do we. We have to be prepared for the trials that are coming for us. Because, guys, I don't know if you've watched the news, but we live in desperate times, don't we? Absolute desperate times. And, and let me unpack that with something that I heard John, Dr. John MacArthur say recently um, in a radio interview. Uh, full credit, John MacArthur makes these observations, but I think it summarizes it so well. Um, he, he explained that because of the fall of the human race and because of the fact that we are all sinners... That, uh, that we need desperate help from God. And mankind cannot survive on this earth without restraint. Without restraint, we will destroy ourselves. And so God has built into the human race restraint on several levels in our society. Uh, the first restraint that God has built into, uh, into us and into our society is the law of God that is written on the human heart. You ladies that are in the women's Bible study, you're in the book of Romans right now, and you see that in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, that, that God has written his law on the human heart. And the law of God convicts us when we sin, and it gives us a sense of well-being when we obey God. And the weapon that God has implemented to enforce that is the human conscience. The human conscience. And in this human conscience, it, it convicts you of sin. Uh, it, it, you know, when, when, uh, when, when you're sinning, it encourages you when you're, when you're on the right track and so on. And this restraint that God has placed has been under attack for 2,000 years. And in earnest, the human conscience is certainly uh, under attack right now. Uh, the prevailing message of the world is that you should have no shame. And we live in a shameless world. Things that were unspeakable even a handful of years ago, today are openly celebrated. You know, up is down and down is up in the eyes of the world. And so the human conscience is under restraint. Well, the second restraint that God has built against the destruction of society is the family structure. The family structure. Parents are tasked with the with the, the, the high holy calling of raising biblically responsive and morally responsible children, right? And the weapon that God has implemented to achieve that is the rod of discipline, the rod of discipline. And here again, the family structure has been under tremendous attack in our culture. I mean, you see it just in television, uh, if there's a father figure at all, uh, on the on the program, a lot of the television programs now, they're, they're you know it's it's not you know a father mother kind of structure. It's some some other kind of structure. But if there's a father at all, so often he's cast to be a fool. He's cast to be a bumbling idiot, and that might be true in my home, but it's not true in every home, right? <clears throat> 
Yeah, you know, you have books out, you know, uh, My Two Moms right now, and, and all of this. The family structure is, is under attack. Well, the third restraint that God has built against the destruction of society is government. If you read in Romans chapter 13 or in 1 Peter chapter 2, it teaches us in the Bible that the government exists to do two things. First of all, it's established by God. All government is established by God. And government exists to, to accomplish two primary purposes, to protect people who do good and to punish people who do evil. That's the role of human government. So kind of summarizing these protections, the conscience is the weapon of the individual to do good. The rod of discipline is the weapon of the family to do good. And if things get really bad, the police and the court system step in, and uh, they step in with the sword of justice. Well, as I said, we live in a society that rejects every one of these restraints, sees them as an enemy of freedom, and fights actively against all of these things. So today, the conscience of our society is becoming increasingly seared. The society is radically redefining the family structure that God has established. And now, in an effort to cast off all restraint of government, we have people rioting in the streets. Uh, we have people crying out to defund the police, to burn the police, to kill the police, right? And when that happens, there is only one restraining force left in the world that God has established, and that's the church. The church, the Holy Spirit working in and through you and me as followers of Christ. These are the days we are living in, and these are the desperate times that you and I face. And we, like Jesus' disciples, we need to be ready to face these desperate times. We need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit in order to live in this world that is so incredibly under attack. Now, if you were with us when we went through 2 Thessalonians not too long ago, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us there that a day is coming when this last restraining force, the Holy Spirit working in and through the church of Jesus Christ, it, it, will, be, it, it will be removed from this world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That he that 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 is talking about is the Holy Spirit working in and through his church, working in and through you and me. And the time that he will be removed is when the Lord returns for his church, when Jesus raptures us into heaven and then the final restraining force uh, in this world against our human sinful flesh is going to be removed and it is quite literally going to be hell on earth. And frankly, we are closer to that time today than ever before. Jesus can return at any moment for his church. And I think last night before the ninth inning would have been a great time for Jesus to return for his church, right? So we need to be ready. Guys, we need to focus on God's timing. Now, as we work through John chapter 7, there's several points that we're going to cover in the coming weeks. We're going to see, first of all, how Jesus' timing is different than man's timing. Secondly, we're going to see how Jesus' message is different than man's message. Thirdly, we're going to see how Jesus' judgment is different than man's judgment. But today, this morning, 
We're going to focus on the first point in our text. Put it on the screen for you. The one and only point we're going to dial into for our remaining time. Jesus' timing is different than man's timing. Look at verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even, verse 5, his brothers did not believe in him. Now, contrary to what some religions teach, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, um, that's not true. Jesus had brothers and sisters. These are half-brothers that, Jesus, or that, that Mary and Joseph conceived after the birth of Jesus. And we don't even need to argue that point because several verses in the Bible tell us that fact. In, Ma- in Mark chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, they mention James, Jude, Simon as, as brothers of Jesus. These would be half-brothers of Jesus, right? Uh, same mother, different father. Um, and uh, they, they, so they mention them as being the son of Mary. Um, Mark chapter 3 tells us of an occasion where Jesus' brothers uh, came looking for him. And, and we get a clue in Mark chapter 3 verse 21 why they are seeking him. Because they thought that he was crazy, right? And they're like, let's just go get him because, man, this guy's lost his mind. Now, here in John chapter 7 verse 5, as we just read, it reflects that truth. That they don't believe him. It says even his brothers did not believe him. By the way, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In, in, in Psalm 69 verse 8, it, it says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Right? So, so this, in fact, this unbelief was, was prophesied. Now, this blows my mind. Right? Absolutely blows my mind. Because these guys lived with Jesus. Right? Like, like you, you can just see the discipline setting in the home, you know, where the parents would say, hey, you, look what you're doing, Jude, come on, what would Jesus do, you know? It's like, <laughs> and, and it's very likely, on top of all of that, that these guys had also attended the wedding in Cana that we looked at back in, in chapter 2 of, of John's Gospel, right, where Jesus performed that, that incredible miracle of turning the water into wine. And yet now, if you look at verse 4, they have the audacity to say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, right? Years ago, I had had a dear friend. He he had professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he came to the place to where he renounced his faith. And the reason he renounced his faith was because he said, uh, you know, I read about God doing miracles in the Bible, but he's never done a miracle in my life, and why... Why can't he make this this cup move from there to there to prove to me that he's God? Why why can't he just do some sort of special manifestation? And I said to him, dude, Jesus' own brothers saw miracles like their entire life growing up, but even those weren't enough for them either. Jesus told a a parable in in, uh, Luke chapter 16 about a rich guy who died and he went to Hades. And in Hades, he was begging Father Abraham. He's like, hey, would you send somebody to warn my brothers so they don't make the same mistake that I make? And Abraham replied to him, he says, they have Moses and the prophets to listen to. But this rich guy replied, 
Sure, of course, yes, but if someone rises from the dead to warn them, they'll listen to him. And Abraham responded, and he said, look, if, they, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe, even if somebody were to rise from the dead. Now, Jesus told this parable as a general truth in relation to the unbelief of the religious leaders of his day. But in the case of Jesus' own brothers, Acts chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that Jesus' resurrection actually was the thing that flipped the switch on their faith and that they came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 1.14 says, These all, speaking of all of of Jesus' disciples, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In fact, Jesus' half-brother Jude is going to go on to write the book of Jude in the New Testament, and Jesus' half-brother James will go on to write the book of James, and in fact, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and was ultimately killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're going to come to believe, but right now, here in our text, they don't believe. And here's their attitude. Their attitude is basically this. Jesus needs to prove that he's the Messiah by going public in Judea, And Jesus needs to capitalize on the opportunity of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booze, when there's this great crowd. He needs to capitalize on that opportunity if he seeks to be known. Well, obviously, Jesus has come to be known, but the the timing was wrong. And so again, verse 3, it says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. That's a huge verse. We'll come back to that. Verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus says to his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, when Jesus says my time, he's referring to the supernatural time time frame established by God the Father, right? This, this is the same thing, by the way, that he said to his mom at the, the wedding feast of Cana, right? She, she wanted Jesus to go public too. Um, but the father's timetable for that was established long ago when Jesus will be revealed to the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The psalmist said this, Psalm 118, verse 4, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And maybe you've said that. You know, you wake up on a, on a morning where, it, where it's just this beautiful morning and, and you, you, you know, you great night's sleep. You got the whole day ahead of you. You're praising Jesus and you just say, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's great and all, but that's not the day that the psalmist was talking about. When the psalmist declares in, in Psalm 118 that this is the day of the Lord has made, what he's referring to is the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And at this point, that day is still six months ahead. 
right? When, when on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides on that donkey into Jerusalem and everybody is crying out, you know, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, you know, Hosanna means saved now, right? And, and all of the religious leaders freaking out, Jesus, rebuke your disciples because they recognized what they were doing. And he said, if I tell you the truth, man, if I tell them to shut up, the rocks will cry out to declare that I am God. Why? Because that's the timetable of God the Father. But at this point, that day is still six months away. So these guys saying, hey, reveal yourself. He's like, I'm on a different timetable. The key point here is the absolute submitted obedience to Jesus, to the Father's will and to the Father's sovereign timeline. That's our key point. I want you to notice the stark contrast to Jesus' timeline with the timeline of his unbelieving brothers, right? Jesus says to them, my time hasn't come, but your time is always ready. What's he mean by that? That word ready, it means literally a time that is opportune and a time that is seasonal. And what Jesus is saying is that, guys, for you, every day is open season on sin. Every day. There's not a day that is not open season, right? The idea is that for a God-rejecting world, which is what his brothers are at this time, they're, a God -rejecting, they're part of a God-rejecting world. And for a God-rejecting world, the timetable and the season for opportunities of your sinful flesh are every day. They are constant. They are right now. In other words, when you reject God and His will for your life, then your life is just a scattered sea of endless choices that you can wander through indiscriminately, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. It's like this is the attitude. And so just an indiscriminate Let's just go wherever the wind blows, right? The Roman philosopher Seneca put it this way. He said, if a man knows not what harbor he seeks, then any wind is the right wind, right? And this is exactly the point that John MacArthur was making in, in the, the part of the, the text that I, or the sermon that I explained to you. That we live in a society that rejects every restraint that God has established and it sees these restraints as an enemy of freedom, of personal choice. And Jesus elaborates on this point. Look again at verse 7. He says exactly that. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. In other words, hey, it doesn't matter when you guys go to Judea because you'll fit right in. That's, that's what he's saying. Brenda and I, when we were coming home from Nashville, we decided we were going to stop at a restaurant and get some lunch before we got on the plane. And uh, it was kind of cool timing because we then ended up getting to see Air Force One fly over the, right over the top of our heads. We got to see the motorcade go right by. All of that was cool. But before that, we, we were at a, a downtown restaurant in Nashville. And I noticed that the, or Brenda noticed actually, that the the window of the door leading into this restaurant had been blown out and it was now covered over with plywood. And so I made some comment to, to the gal as we were sitting down. I said, oh, you know, what happened to your window? And she said, well, somebody thought it'd be a good idea to throw a brick through it. 
Well, after we finished lunch and we left, we started noticing other businesses along this street, one of them that had quite obviously been damaged, and they had tried to set fire to it. And, and we put the, the pieces together and realized, man, this, this was an area that we saw on the news just last week where there was an Antifa riot. Metaphorically speaking, the world is like that Antifa riot. Right? And as long as you show up dressed all in black with a brick in your hand, you'll fit right in. But imagine you show up wearing a MAGA hat. It's an entirely different story. You ain't going to fit right in, right? And Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, we'll get there eventually, he said the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. And this is the issue, right? This is the issue. Do we fit in the world or do we not fit in the world? I remember Greg Laurie once said that uh, if, uh, if you're living your life and you haven't had a head-on collision with the devil, you might want to check your course because you might be going in the same direction, right? So Jesus concludes, verses 8 and 9, he says to these guys, you go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And when he'd said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. As we close, I want to remind you that the big idea of our text comes down to God's timing. It comes down to God's timing. And, it, and really, the idea is, how does our willingness in our lives to submit to God's sovereign will and God's sovereign timing factor in? Uh, do we have that willingness? Do we have that, that comprehension of God's sovereign working in our lives? Or are we going to demand on our, our own way and just have any wind be the right wind in our lives? That's the idea. And so we see Jesus operating in complete and total submission to the will of God and to God's sovereign time, timing in his life. But we see Jesus' unbelieving brothers operating in complete obliviousness to God's will. Which one are you? Which one are you is the question. Three questions as we take a walk with this. Number one, as a disciple of Jesus, how can or how are you preparing for the days ahead? Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple keep going and they suffer the consequences. So how are you preparing for the days ahead? Second question, what can you do to operate intentionally according to the will of God and His timing and His time frame in your life? What are the things that you can do to be mindful of that? Third question takes some setup. I want you to take note that Jesus' brothers, what are they doing? They're going to a religious gathering, right? They're going to a religious gathering, and the irony is, is that they miss their Redeemer as they're going to church, so to speak. In other words, they're following tradition, but they're not following truth. How are some ways that we do that? How are some ways that we follow tradition and we don't follow truth? And how can we guard against it? 